Sports Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. The jury has the case in the uh, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. And uh, before we kind of go over a recap of the closing arguments yesterday, uh, I want to go up to Raleigh where Governor Roy Cooper just made uh, uh, an appearance in front of the Capitol Press Corps. Um, and I don't know if it's still going on or not, but this was uh, he scheduled it at noon. And I'm going to assume it had to do with getting some live uh, time on news stations as well as uh, radio stations, much like this one. Um, you get the live coverage at noon, straight up at noon, because the TV stations are all doing their uh, 12 o'clock casts. But also the uh, Senate, I believe, is taking up the budget vote at noon. So I saw some. Uh, pundits and uh, reporters speculating, because that's what reporters do nowadays, uh, speculating about whether this was offered up as counter-programming against the General Assembly. But Roy Cooper announcing he will sign the budget that the uh, General Assembly Republican leadership proposed officially yesterday. So let's take a listen. Cooper's at the podium, takes off his mask. Well, good morning, everybody. As you know, North Carolina's legislature has been working on a statewide budget for many months, and now it is expected to be on my desk by the end of the week. I and my staff have reviewed it. I will sign this budget because on balance, the good outweighs the bad. It moves North Carolina forward in important ways, many that are critical to our state's progress as we're emerging from this pandemic. And while I believe that it is a budget of some missed opportunities and misguided policy, it's also a budget that we desperately need at this unique time in the history of our state. North Carolina has been without a comprehensive budget for almost three years. You vetoed every one of them. While I have a veto that I know would be sustained in the Senate, this is a time when the state must move ahead. Too many important investments in this budget are overdue, particularly with the likelihood that the Republican leadership would respond to a successful veto by walking away from many of the good things that are in it. And right now, we just can't afford that. This budget got many things right. Expanding high-speed internet across the state so that people can access education, telehealth, and work. Funding for our outstanding universities and community colleges, particularly our HBCUs that are educating our workforce. Helping businesses recover from pandemic losses and expanding to create more jobs. Strengthening infrastructure so our growing state has clean, reliable water. Alrighty, I think I'm done. Uh, the headline there is... Um Nah, seriously, like I, he's he's really annoying to listen to for me, at least. He's just very annoying. Um, and I say that as someone who listened to every one of his covid briefings for over a year and a half. So um, I think I've only missed one. And that was like the last one because he held it. Like right after my show or something. Anyway, he's going to veto the budget. I find it kind of comical that uh, he says he uh, he's going to do it because we haven't had a budget in three years. Yes. We haven't had a budget your entire tenure because you refused to sign any budgets. Did you catch the dig also 
that he was so certain that his veto would be upheld in the Senate. It would be sustained in the Senate. He did not say the House, because you'll recall, if you've been listening to uh, the uh, the interviews that we do with uh, the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, which we've got him coming on later on today, uh, I think around 2.30. So uh, Tim Moore has said that he's confident that they've got the votes to sustain the veto, or uh, sorry, to override the veto. They have the votes to override the veto, says Tim Moore in the House. And I'll ask him today whether or not he thinks he's got them in the Senate, not that he's the Senate leader, but this was all part of the negotiation. So uh, he could be confident in the House more so than the Senate, but if Phil Berger thinks that he's got the votes lined up in the Senate too, and honestly, like there were more, it's easier to get them in the Senate. There's just fewer of them, and there are more uh, conservative uh, Democrats, uh, a couple of them that are more likely to jump over. But I'll ask him today. But you notice the, the 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 shot he takes at the General Assembly there. Like, oh, I had enough. I could totally do this. I'm not a lame duck. You're a lame duck. So, and he is a lame duck. But Democrats also recognize that their power right now as the minority party in the legislature is greatly enhanced by his ability to veto and their ability to sustain. At some point, the juice isn't worth the squeeze on that. At some point, and this might be it, because we do our budgets every two years in this state. So this is a biennium. This is the two-year budget. And so the next time we're going to be in a long session is going to be after the election, I believe, because this is 21, so it'll be 23 time frame that we're doing another one. Yeah, so some of these guys... We'll be trying to run in a 2024 race, and we don't know who's going to be the gubernatorial candidate for the Democrat at that point. We don't know if Democrats are going to be able to vote for or against a budget. You you don't know what the politics look like at that point. But Cooper's juice is basically gone when they're looking to make their reelection bids. And so that's the, the political reality. So this was essentially the last shot that Cooper had at trying to do something legacy building because honestly what has been his legacy except for covid right lockdowns mask mandates the shuttering of businesses closing of schools this has been his legacy so because he has nothing else to show for really anything right there's no policy wins that he has had so he's going to sign this budget and i will say thank goodness because There are two policy items in the budget that I am really, really, really glad he's signing. One, a fix to the Emergency Management Act that now all of a sudden I guess it's okay to agree with Pete on something. And the ban on collusive settlements that will prohibit the kinds of deals that we saw Mark Elias and Josh Stein hammer out. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. A reminder that on Tuesday, December 7th, all day, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., we're going to be down at Bank of America Stadium collecting bicycles. Hancock's Bikes for Kids. It's, uh, what, year number 29 now? But who's counting? I mean, aside from us. WBT, the Carolina Panthers, and our pals over at WSOC-TV, proud to announce Hancock's Bikes for Kids is back for 2021. So uh, if you're thinking about uh, grabbing a bike and donating it for a local kid, make their Christmas a little bit better by getting a bike. 
Uh, it's a great event, has been every single year. And uh, if you're thinking about doing that, please think about grabbing a bike earlier rather than later because, you know, all of the supply chain stuff. So visit WBT.com for all of the details. And thanks so much. And Merry Christmas. We appreciate that. Um, Governor Cooper just announced he will sign the budget saying that the good outweighs the bad, even though there's a lot of bad in the budget. Also, Democrats really uh, would appreciate not having to run on another vetoed budget when they're up for re-election in 2022. Uh, well, he didn't say that part, but it's th- it, that's true. He also said, though, because I mentioned the two things that I was most uh, satisfied to see as part of the budget that I was really surprised he would go along with, the Emergency Management Act fix and uh, the ban on collusive settlements. So real quick, um, the I, I talked about this the other day at great length, and um, the Emergency Management Act fix, there have been various versions of it run as separate standalone bills, and the governor has vetoed them uh, every time, basically protecting and preserving for himself this indefinite, limitless power that he has assumed through what is obviously an error in the bill drafting of the original EMA, the Emergency Management Act of the state, to the point where he realized he knew that he needed to get approval or concurrence from his fellow statewide elected members of the executive branch, the Council of State offices. This is uh, the governor, it's the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, the secretary of state, Uh, Labor Commissioner, Insurance Commissioner, Treasurer, Auditor, Agriculture Commissioner, and the Superintendent for Public Instruction. Those 10 offices make up the Council of State. And the Emergency Management Act says he needs concurrence, and it gives all of these, you know, legal definitions and examples and such. And he initially went to the Council of State saying he needed to declare a state of emergency and he needed to shut down everything. He needed, you know, 15 days to flatten the curve. You know, fast forward 82 weeks, but 15 days to flatten the uh, the curve. And uh, the Council of State was not on board with shuttering the businesses, the restaurants and such. He did not have Republican support. And there are six Republicans on the Council of State. Six of those statewide offices, Republicans won. In fact, Steve Troxler, the ag commissioner, he was the top votainer. Eh? See? Not vote-getter. Votainer. That's the new word we're using. Votainer. Make it stick, people. I need your help. Okay, so top votainer. Nobody got more votes in the statewide election than Steve Troxler did. And the ag sector got hit particularly hard by COVID. Yet, his opinion was not sought in declaring the state of emergency and shuttering all of these businesses down. And declaring essential and non-essential and how would that work and all this other stuff. In fact, when you look at the timeline of how this went down, Roy Cooper's office, uh, when, it, when it became clear that they knew they weren't going to get concurrence, they announced the press conference before the Council of State could even get back to them with a final vote. So the uh, the fix was in. He wanted the power because he felt like he needed, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, he felt like he needed to do it. And then the fact that we've never gone back under a lockdown indicates to me at least that they recognize that was a mistake, but they will never acknowledge it was a mistake. So the EMA fix would say you got to get concurrence from the council of state in the future. If you want to have a state of emergency that lasts longer than I think it's seven days. 
or 45 days. There have been different iterations of it. So I'm glad that this fix is in the budget because if he signs it, now it becomes law. But he says at the press briefing today that he does not consent to the constitutionality of these provisions. And so the speculation is now from the reporters because that's what reporters like to do nowadays is to speculate on what could or couldn't happen. And so the speculation is that he's going to go to court over it. Okay. Um, I guess that's where this is going to get fought. Well, Pacific Legal Foundation is already fighting it in court, and every time they made uh, progress in the trial, he would abandon portions of his emergency declaration uh, in order to avoid those particular issues from being settled by the court. Pretty unethical, but that's what has been going on. And so, uh, I don't know, we'll see. I have no idea. We'll see what happens. Now, the other fix is the collusive settlement deal. This was... Uh, a response to this sue-and-settle strategy the Democrats have been employing, not just in North Carolina, as most recently we saw with the use of the absentee ballot and voting law overhaul uh, that was done at the behest of Democrat plaintiffs represented by Mark Elias, right, that entered into an agreement with the Board of Elections and the Attorney General and did an end run around the legislature and did not get their concurrence on the settlement of that lawsuit. So this would ban that kind of collusive deal. So I guess he's going to fight that out in court as well. We shall see. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. We are going to do our Jen Psaki impression today and circle back to the um, budget stuff later on. We've got the Speaker of the House joining us at 2.30. We'll chat about the budget and the governor's announcement today that uh, he will sign the North Carolina budget, uh, and that would be the first budget he will sign. He's been in office over, uh, for more than one term. This is his second term. He is term limited, but he is uh, he's never done anything other than veto a budget. But now he's totally going to sign this one, even though he doesn't like a lot of the stuff in it. So let's uh, let me shift gears to what we were actually going to start off the program today with, which was the audio from yesterday's closing remarks, the closing arguments in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Jurors uh, are deliberating right now. They got the case this morning and uh, prosecutors claimed in closing arguments that Rittenhouse was a wannabe soldier, uh, that he provoked all of the bloodshed because he brought a rifle to the protest and that he was menacing others, according to the Associated Press article. And then after he shot and killed two people and wounded a third He walked off like a hero in a Western after killing the two people. Um, Rittenhouse's lawyer countered that Rittenhouse acted in self-defense after being ambushed by a crazy person who he feared would wrest away his gun and use it to kill him. Which, of course he would have. The man was insane. Joseph Rosenbaum was insane. Okay? He was crazy. 
There is an entire school of, uh, uh, of sociological thought on, on mob mentality, and Joseph Rosenbaum is the zero actor in a mob, in a riot, okay? Every, here's the theory. Everybody's got a number, okay? That number is an act of violence. So some people whose numbers, like you would never walk down the street and just start bashing in car windows, right? But if your number is, let's say, 100, if you saw a hundred people walking down the street bashing in car windows, then maybe you would, right? That's what you would do in order to join in with the violence. So everybody's got a number, and the number can change. But what all riots require is the zero number, the zero actor. Somebody at the beginning whose number is zero. They don't need to see any act of violence for them to act first. That's Rosenbaum. He started doing these things, lighting fires. He started bashing things. Now, there was already violence occurring. But he was interested in attacking people. He had. Now, the prosecutor made the argument that, oh, he was just, like he literally said, Napoleon complex. He was a small guy who wasn't a threat to anybody. I dare say that that prosecutor, either one of these, the two assistant DAs, I dare say that They've never been in a physical altercation in their life. It's not the size of the guy in the fight. It's not. It's the size of the fight and the guy, right? Anybody else? Like most people, when I say the first half of that sentence, they're going to know the second half, right? You probably heard it with the dog, not the size of the dog in the fight. The fact that they made this argument in their closing is, it's almost as insane as Rosenbaum. Almost. Okay. So here is... Assistant DA Thomas Binger, he's describing how Rittenhouse went out looking for trouble. So then that video that I just showed you picks off, leaves off at about 11.35 p.m. The police have moved the protesters south of 60th Street. They've tear gassed the crowd and there's no protesters left. 59th Street is no longer in any danger. Wasn't much danger to begin with. Wasn't anything left there to protect. But by this point, there's no more danger. As law enforcement comes through, you've heard this video where they tell the defendant and his group, we appreciate you and hand them out bottles of water. As long as you stay on that private property, yeah. No one is saying you don't have the right to stay on private property and protect private property. What people are saying, what the crowd is saying is stay there. Don't go out looking for trouble. And he didn't listen to the crowd. He didn't listen to the angry crybaby, LARPing communist anarchists. He didn't listen to them. The violent mob ransacking the city, burning and looting. He didn't listen to them when they said, you just stay right there while we continue to do these violent acts. How dare you? This is the underlying theme in all this. There is... There is there is a belief, apparently, that we've all watched the pen from the uh, uh, Men in Black movies, right? That we all watched that pen or something and bloop, got our memories erased. We don't remember seeing people getting beaten, unconscious, and almost to death in the streets during these riots. That we don't remember seeing that. That we don't remember seeing buildings being burned in Kenosha the night before. We didn't see that either, right? We, we didn't see... The, the mob going through and bashing in the car, setting police cars on fire, throwing 
uh, uh, frozen water bottles at cops. We didn't see any of these things. No, no, no. They, they were just peaceful protesters. This was the, what, the 96% peaceful protesting? They were just walking down the street. I mean, aside from the areas where they, the 4% areas where they were, you know, bashing in things and lighting fires and stuff. For multiple days straight, had they, had they, had law enforcement and the politicians who direct them, had they not stood down, then we would not have seen civilian response like we saw. This is what defund police looks like, by the way. In case you were interested, like, for some real-world applications, like, what might this look like with some, uh, we just want to defund all the police departments. You just see what it looks like, you know? Let's just try it. Kenosha, Wisconsin, that was it right there. That's what a defund police city looks like. Right? There are no cops there. And so people take up arms against their aggressors. And the aggressors were the protesters who went out there night after night after night after night. And uh, I forget where I heard it may have been. Was it was it Vince's show where these uh, I think uh, earlier Vince was talking about like you had people coming up from Chicago. This is not far from Chicago. The hotbed of, you know, modern day Marxism like Chicago and Milwaukee, another ground zero for the LARPing commies. Like, by the way, LARPing means live action role playing. It's yeah. they <laughs> And temporary anarchists, temporary anarchists. They're not actual anarchists. They're they're communists. They're statists. They're big government folks. They don't they're not for no government. They're for temporarily no government just so they can inflict as much pain as possible and then get you to agree to their uh, their systems that allow them to be in control. That's it. It's just a bigger government mechanism. We're going to use the violence and the temporary breakdown in law and order. We're going to use this temporary anarchy in order to advance a bigger government. That, oh, by the way, will empower us. So, got an email from Kathy to Pete at the PeteCallanerShow.com talking about the assistant DA Binger, Thomas Binger, saying that uh, she listens to him with difficulty. His description of events omits the entire violence surrounding the situation. He should be an editor in Hollywood. <laughs> He's done a pitiful job. This is Custer's, la- oh, Custer's last name, Kathy. Um, and, uh, all right, so Thomas Binger is the assistant DA. We're playing uh, parts of his uh, closing argument. And I use that term argument only because that's what they call it. <laughs> it's not really an argument. It's not persuasive. And uh, not to me, at least. So he's describing how Rittenhouse went out looking for trouble. The defendant hears this message from the police and takes it the wrong way. He thinks, oh, well, now I'm junior policeman. I can go run around stopping crime. But I asked him and I asked some other witnesses, if the police are there on the scene and the protesters are gone, go home. Why are you still here? Shouldn't have been here in the first place. But why are you still sticking around? And interestingly enough, you know, one of the questions I've always had in the back of my mind is, what's the end game here? When is this crew going to be done and decide that, that it's time to leave? Well, right after the defendant kills Joseph Rowe's mom, kills Anthony Huber, and comes back, they all flee like rats off a sinking ship. Now, you realize, like, the, the, the dishonesty here that Binger is employing. They're there because of the rioting and the looting and the violence. That's why those citizens showed up armed to protect the businesses, 
and to make sure that things did not get out of control as they had over the previous three or four nights. And after Rittenhouse shot and killed two people and wounded a third, everyone dispersed. That was it. It was over. Right? When Because that's kind of what starts happening. Like when people start getting shot and killed at these uh, riots, that usually ends the riots. Just, I don't know, I mean, just, just watching what happens when these things occur. So it's not really that, uh, big of a brain buster here. I don't understand why Binger doesn't understand. But it's boring at 59th Street. There's no protesters. There's no action. So the defendant decides about 11.35 p.m. to cross the police line and go looking for trouble. He knows at this point he's entering a hostile crowd. He's seen this crowd. He knows what they're like. That's why he has to yell friendly to them. Because he knows they're not going to see him and think he's friendly. And he knows he's got to have Ryan Balch with him. Some sort of buddy to protect him. And he's immediately confronted by that man with the yellow pants who says, you just pointed your gun at me. And the defendant says, yeah, I did. He admits that. Now, what's interesting to me is they want you to believe this never happened. They want you to believe this guy in the yellow pants made it up or is lying. But he's just standing there by the side of the road, minding his own business, when the defendant happens to walk up to him. Do you think he just sat there and thought, oh, I'm going to make up a lie about this guy on the, on the spur of the moment? Or did it really happen? And is it consistent with everything else you've seen about the defendant? Does he sound like the sort of guy who would point a gun at someone for standing on a car? For well, wait, wait, for standing on a car, did he did he point the gun at the guy for standing on the car, and then the guy's like, "You just pointed your gun at me!" Like, and Rittenhouse said, "Yeah, sure, I did." Rittenhouse, by the way, responded to that and said he was being sarcastic because he didn't believe he had done that. So whatever. Does he strike you as the kind of guy that would threaten deadly force to protect property? Because that's what happened. The man in the yellow pants says it happened. The defendant agrees. And then he comes into the trial and says, oh, I, I was being sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Like he's a little 17-year-old and he wants to get out of it. Shortly after that, the defendant loses track of his protector, Ryan Balch. So now he's in a position where he knows that he's surrounded by people that consider him a threat. And what do people who consider him a threat, what, what might they be then? A threat, do you think? I love how this guy's argument is that all the people hated Kyle Rittenhouse. They viewed him as a threat. Oh, and by the way, there was really no big deal for him to be there. Why was he there? And he basically provoked everybody by being there because there wasn't a, there wasn't a threat to him. It, he's trying to have it both ways in his argument. He knows that he's not supposed to go anywhere without Ryan Balch. He knows he's supposed to go back to 59th Street. And he does. He tries. He walks up to the police line. He says... I work there. That's my business, which isn't true, but whatever. And they won't let him through. Now, Ryan Balch makes it on through shortly thereafter, but the defendant gives up. He could go one block in either direction and make it back easily if he wants to, but he stops and decides, you know what, I'm going to stay here and maybe see what's going to happen. Yeah, maybe hang around where all the cops are because you're one guy in a mob that you just said doesn't want him there. I don't know, but yeah, totally walk a block around uh, the corner there. I'm sure nothing bad will happen. 
So then he talks to these people with fire extinguishers, and he's going to go down to 63rd Street, and he asks one of them to come along, and they say no. Now at this point, doesn't have Ryan Balch. He knows he's supposed to go back. He knows he's supposed to have a buddy, and yet he decides to go it alone. He decides to run down to 63rd Street, or walk down to 63rd Street. Doesn't even know if that other group is still there. Doesn't even know if he's really needed, but he can't wait to take this opportunity to go down and confront people. Because he thinks he's some sort of cop, some sort of law enforcement agent. No some evidence. Some sort of junior cadet who's out there with a, the with a responsibility to fight crime. Nobody nope. asked him to do that. No Nobody evidence of any right. of that. Nobody deputized him. Ryan Balch says, the police told me, the crowds, we're going to push him down by you, you're going to deal with them. The Bearcats hand out water and tell him he's appreciated. As he's crossing the police line, they warn him about people throwing rocks. What is the message the defendant takes from all of this? The wrong message. Oh, well, now I've got the power. I've got the gun. What? I'm going to go confront these bad guys. I'm going to my, stick my nose in things. So what does he do when he gets down to 63rd Street? The first thing he does, we showed it to you at the very beginning, that drone video. Grabs that gun and points it at someone to protect property. Points it at the Zeminskis. Because why? Because they're, what, about to mess with some sort of fire? They're not threatening anyone's lives. <laughs> he doesn't need to protect anyone. He doesn't need to protect himself. He's pointing a gun because he thinks he needs to protect property. He says he wants to put out a fire, but the first thing he does is drop the fire extinguisher on the ground. His AR-15 isn't going to put out a fire. So why is he really there? And we all agree, you can't use or threaten deadly force to protect someone else's property. Now, what's interesting is that we remember when he first started off these comments, he said, no one's saying he can't go down there to protect property. Also, Zeminski had a handgun, was shooting off rounds throughout the night and lighting a fire at the same time. Maybe that might be why... I don't know. It just seems like, you know, a riot was going on. Just my completely unexpert opinion. 